Welcome, everybody, to the latest episode of Star Cells, and God. This is the podcast where we explore the latest discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science and describe how those discoveries provide evidence for God's existence, God's nature, and the reliability of Scripture. My name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist, and I work for an organization called Reasons to Believe. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, www.reasons.org. Also, you can follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then last but not least, please go to our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe, and use the subscribe button so that you can access great content that we have on a wide range of questions dealing with science and the Christian faith. Also, use the notification button so that you can be alerted the next time an episode of Star Cells and God drops. Okay, well, I'm joined in studio today by Dr. Hugh Ross, who is an astrophysicist and also a Christian apologist and the founder of Reasons to Believe. And Hugh, you've got a great discovery about human migrations and how that connects to the Genesis 1 to 11 uh, creation story. And then uh, I'm going to be talking a bit about uh, Maxwell's demon and or, and or Maxwell's demons and how these actually appear in certain biochemical systems. Well, Maxwell is one of my heroes. Uh, demons, not so much. <laughs> yeah, there so, we go. Okay. There we go. All right, well, Hugh, why don't you start us off with, you, with a discussion sure. of your work? Well, I'm about halfway through writing a book about Noah's flood. I'm actually writing a full-length book on Noah's flood. And I just finished writing the chapter on dating uh, Noah's flood. And it's not easy to come up with an accurate date for mm-hmm. Noah's flood. In fact, that's a point I make is we can come up with an estimate. Uh, you know, what we do see in Genesis is that uh, it took a year for the flood waters to recede. And for it to take that long, there would have to be huge amounts of melting snow and ice. So I believe that Genesis 8 is telling us that Noah's flood took place sometime during the last ice age. Mm. Now, that doesn't give you an accurate date. That's anywhere from, say, 14,000 to 125,000 years ago. But what you see in the chapters that follow uh, Noah's flood is that humanity was commanded by God to multiply and fill the earth. And uh, Genesis 11 records that they were not doing that. They were staying in one region. And God basically came down and gave them different languages, and scattered them over the whole face of the earth. And when you read Genesis 10 and 11, it seems to suggest that the scattering uh, was quite pervasive and uh, fairly rapid. So I went into the scientific literature to see if there's support for this. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I was reading these review papers on, you know, how do we date the arrival of the first humans into Europe, the Americas, Australia, I mean, we know that humans were present in Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia, but what about the dispersal into all of Asia? And uh, what I noted about these review papers is that they were looking for uh, dates uh, that were consistent. And basically, they talked about four dates, dating methods, and uh, it's something I've written about before. Uh, And the four are, okay, dating human remains. So you got the remains of human beings, the bones particularly, and you can date those. Uh, you can date the artifacts uh, that are clearly associated with anatomically mm-hmm. modern humans. And anatomically modern humans were involved in cooking their food almost right away. So the other piece of evidence they look at is food preparation. Mm-hmm. What's the date we got for food preparation? And uh, then last of all, the genetic evidence. The first three, uh, typically you're using uh, mm-hmm. carbon-14 dating, mm-hmm. and uh, they were claiming that if they got a big enough sample, they can push that back to 50,000 years ago. Yeah, with things like yeah, accelerator mass spectrometry, things right. like that. Yeah, you need a pure sample. It needs to be a fairly big sample to get it that early. Yeah. Getting back to 40,000 is not a problem, but 50 is a stretch. But they have data that can take them back that far. And what they're looking for are dating methods where they say, well, we, we have reliable dating methods, and they're not showing any evidence, and then they do show evidence. So they always want, insist that they got reliable dating methods that go earlier 
than the earliest positive indication. So you got both a negative mm. uh, confirmation, a positive confirmation. And uh, when they did that uh, for Europe, uh, the dates were amazingly consistent. And so, because they had all four, they had the uh, human remains, mm -hmm. you got the artifacts, and uh, probably the latest one was that they were actually able to date uh, that humans were doing sophisticated food preparation in Greece that goes back 40,000 years. You know, until a few months ago, the earliest date they had was like 33,000 years ago, but they pushed it back to 40. And this is where they got evidence uh, that humans were harvesting grains, uh, soaking them, and boiling or roasting them uh, in order to, mm -hmm. and then how they were actually using grains uh, that would be poisonous for human consumption if eaten raw. Mm. Uh, but if they're boiled and roasted and ground, then they're safe to eat. So they thought that was a really good indicator uh, of the fact that, hey, they really were involved in this. So that, that dates 40,000 years ago. Uh, the genetic dates were coming in at 42 to 44,000 years ago. And then the dates that they get for human artifacts mm -hmm. were 40 to 45,000 years ago. And human remains uh, were between uh, 40 and 44,000 years ago. So the bottom line is 40 to 44,000 and probably closer to the 44 than the 40, but you yeah. know, that's a secure date. And then they said, okay, let's do the same in Asia and uh, let's go to parts of Asia where you would need significant migration. So for example, okay. Eastern Siberia. Yeah. You know, it's a long walk from the Middle East to get to Eastern Siberia or Southeast Asia. So looking in the Philippines and Borneo uh, you know, uh, Vietnam area and looking for, and they did the, the same four techniques there. They did note there that the genetic data uh, had fairly big error bars. When they only looked at human remains and uh, artifacts that are ad identified with anatomically modern humans, uh, they did <laughs> not find any early evidence for food preparation. Um, but uh, those dates, again, were coming mm. in at about 40 to 45,000 years ago. One was saying maybe 46,000 years ago. Uh, the genetics was like, you know, 40 to 50,000 mm -hmm. years ago. So, and then what caught my attention was uh, there's been a huge revision of dating uh, for Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are two review papers that basically made the point, hey, there's evidence uh, that humans, cited evidence in the scientific literature that the humans were in Australia uh, 65,000 years ago. And you're probably aware of that famous Gymnian uh, rock shelter right. where they were saying 58 to 75,000 years ago. The reviewers basically discounted all of that because they said we've actually been able to find uh, you know, carbon remains uh, associated with the thermoluminescence dating, basically showing that the thermoluminescence dating uh, was pushing the dates back way earlier mm. than uh, was legitimate. So for example, uh, they were finding these circular engravings in the Jinmian rock shelter in Australia. And you know that's been in the literature 58 to 75,000 years ago, but in the very same uh, layers in which the engravings were found, uh, they found some uh, carbon mm -hmm. radiometrically dated that. And those uh, samples are coming back 100 to 3,900 years ago. Mm -hmm. So basically making the point that the thermoluminescence was off by a factor of about 20 times. And they were able to show that in every case, the thermoluminescence and optical luminescence dates uh, were pushing it back way mm -hmm. too early. And you know, I think for obvious reasons, uh, the method is based on uh, how much exposure the samples right. are getting to solar radiation. And uh, if you don't know how, off, how long it's been buried, uh, you're going to get a big systematic error. Yeah. So, but fortunately, they were able to find carbon samples in the same remains and basically said, okay, Jimnian, uh, we have nothing old, but there's 26 other sites in mm -hmm. New Guinea and Australia where they were able to recover carbon uh, in the human remains. And those dates came back 40 to 47,000 years ago which is something that you think would be reasonable if you've got evidence for humans in Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. uh, you know, 40 to 46,000 years ago, 
it's not that difficult for those humans to make it into uh, Australia. Mm -hmm. And we got a map here to show people because when you're living during the last ice age, sea levels are as much as 390 feet lower than they are today. And so throughout the uh, entire ice age, uh, you've got this continent that they call Sahul, and it's Australia and New Guinea and Tasmania, uh, all as one contiguous landmass. And so Australia is a bigger continent during the last ice age because of lower sea levels. And likewise, you, don't, you notice that Borneo is not isolated from the Asian mainland. Uh, you've got land joining Borneo, Java, Sumatra, uh, to, mm. uh, you know, Cambodia and uh, Vietnam. They call that uh, region Sunda. And uh, there is some water that uh, separates the Philippines uh, from Borneo, uh, but the water separation we're talking is only a few miles. Yeah. And so humans can actually see, hey, there's land over there, and they can use crude boats to get over there because we do see evidence mm -hmm. for human habitation in the Philippines just as early as we see it in Borneo. But that is significant because that means if humans are able to go from Borneo into the Philippines uh, at about the same time, you also notice in this map is that you've got short water distances between Sunda and Sahal. There's several different migration routes right. where you can basically say, hey, I can see land over there. Uh, you can use a crude boat to get over there. And so it's not surprising to me that we got roughly the same dates mm -hmm. for humans colonizing Sahal as we have humans right. colonizing Sunda and the Philippines. Uh, you know, today it'd be a major job to try to go from Southeast Asia to Australia uh, because the Timor Strait is uh, quite wide. Uh, but during the last ice age, uh, that would have been a narrow right. strait and humans can get there. But I think the thing that impressed me, Fuzz, is that here you got, you know, these... Uh, you know, thorough, you've got four different dating methods, and uh, they're being used in mm. uh, Europe. And by the way, they're seeing it all over Europe. It's not just mm. uh, in Italy. Italy and Spain is where they got the most data, and France, but they're actually seeing uh, they got new data that mm. basically shows that humans were getting into England uh, just as rapidly as they were getting into Italy and Greece. Mm. So once again, of course, back then, you've got a land bridge joining France uh, to England. Mm. And so uh, we have dates that are basically 42,000 years ago for humans in Britain. And uh, I think what impressed me is this really does seem to support the interpretation of Genesis 9, 10, and 11, that there was a moment several generations after Noah's flood uh, where God aggressively scattered humanity mm -hmm. over all the continents of the earth, with the exception of North and South America. Uh, you know, that was later, that's about 16,500 years ago, where you the first undisputed evidence for humans in North and South America. Uh, but indeed, what we see is that all of Eurasia and Africa uh, was fully inhabited mm -hmm. uh, somewhere between 40 and uh, 45, 47,000 uh, years ago. Right. And it seemed to be taking place simultaneously over the entirety of uh, Eurasia. Right. So that would support that particular interpretation of uh, Genesis. And uh, if you actually look at what the early church fathers were writing and people in the uh, Middle Ages and the Reformation, that was the most common interpretation of uh, those chapters in the book of Genesis. And now we got the data mm -hmm. that basically sustains that, yes, that is the most reasonable interpretation of the text, and we now got the science to support that interpretation. Yeah. Now, um, the, the models that I've seen, at least in these are previous models, would say that the migration, you know, out of, you know, out of Africa would have been, you know, in the, the 50 to 60,000 year range and that the route of migration would have taken advantage of this coastal superhighway, mm -hmm. right? So that the, because they're moving along the, the coast, humans are moving along the coast, there's a pl plenty of resources available and the, the, the landscape is very similar. And, you know, and they may have taken, some small groups may have broken off and have migrated up rivers and things like that. Uh, 
and that the the idea was that probably Asia was occupied first, and then you'd have a back migration into Europe uh, at about 45 to, to maybe even 50,000 years ago. I'm seeing some reports uh, that humans may have been, small groups of humans may have been in the in Europe even earlier than 45,000 years ago. So that's kind of the, 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 you know, and then there would also have been a migration into Australia, right, from Asia. Asia was kind of the, the place where humans went first and then spread from there. Well, these authors are making the comment, yes, you do see earlier dates for Africa, the Levant, uh, the Near and Middle East. Uh, but what I was focusing on here is when right. do we actually see humans right. in the extremities of Asia? Right. Not just, you know, the uh, Near right. East and Middle East part, but in the extremities of Asia, the extremities of Europe, right. and into Australia. So that gives you, in effect, um, you might say a minimum date for when the flood would have taken place. And then the maximum date would have been when you, you've got evidence that humans began that migration. So you're able to kind of bracket it, right? Yeah, that's all I'm saying. We can get a bracket. We can't right. get a, an accurate, precise date, but we can get a bracket saying it has to be earlier than this. Yeah. And what this data is telling us is not the date for Noah's flood. It's the date for the dispersal of humanity after Noah's flood. Right, right. And that's a good... uh, when you look at Genesis chapter 11, you notice there's several generations right. between Noah and right. the dispersal event. And exactly how many generations... Right. That's open to interpretation because there's a consensus. Right. None of the genealogies in the Bible are complete. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you've got some uh, leeway there as to how much time goes by. But certainly you'd have to conclude that Noah's flood right. uh, would have had to take place previous to, say, 45,000 years ago. And you say, well, how much more previously can it go? Well... Uh, I believe that Genesis 8 is definitively telling us it took place during the Ice Age. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you could go back uh, 120,000 years ago. You're still in the Ice Age. Uh, some have argued maybe you can go back to the previous Ice Age. Right. Uh, but it is interesting that uh, you do get at least a range of reasonable dates right. by using these methods. Right. Because, you know, this is a pretty impressive study. I guess the one, you know, if you might want to call it weakness or maybe limitation is they are relying on carbon-14 dating. And as you're pointing out that you can push it maybe to, to 50,000 years ago. But if you're looking at events that may have happened a little bit earlier, that, that technique is going to be, you know, silent about, about that. Well, they do make the point that if you're looking at other dating methods like thermoluminescence or uranium-thorium precipitation or optical luminescence, you're dealing with really big right. systematic errors and explains why there's such a disparity there. Right. But they did bring in the genetic dating method, which is not based on carbon-14. Right. And they said, you know, where you've got a significant uh, population study that you can do, they said it's interesting that mm. it's consistent right. uh, with these radiocarbon dates. So that's why they're saying uh, we're suspect of earlier dates. Right. Uh, so they're, they're basically discounting the earlier dates. But again, they're focusing on, okay, where do we see humans right. being broadly dispersed? Yeah. They're, they're not addressing the first humans. We're not talking Adam and Eve. Right. We're talking about the dispersal event that's described in Genesis uh, chapter 11. Yeah. No, this is a, a really interesting study. It's, uh, yeah, uh, move, inching us towards uh, a much more robust, you know, well, it's the Insight first time into Genesis I've seen 1 and 11. All, well, back when it impressed me, the review papers were all, these are independent groups of researchers doing a review uh, spread over a five-year period, mm -hmm. but they're all coming up with the same answers. Yeah. So the fact that we see a consistency right. in their conclusions yeah. and the fact that we see a consistency on three different continents, right. I think really does give support that, hey, we're talking... Uh, uh, an aggressive, rapid dispersal. Right. And, uh, you know, that would be uh, a signature of the hand of God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, minimum, what it's saying is that the the biblical text is fully compatible with what science is discovering. And you're right, that, that very rapid migration is, to me, really odd. 
right? That the fact that you're seeing humans moving that quickly. Well, it's especially odd when you see them moving into places that are not climatically uh, optimal. Mm -hmm. They're going into Australia where there's a real problem coming with the water that you need. So it's a harsh environment. Northern Europe is harsh. You go to Eastern Siberia, that's harsh. So the fact that we're seeing mm -hmm. humans tells us, hey, this is something that we wouldn't expect. And uh, you know, in terms of where we might go next, well, I think it's clear that you have to be at certain times during the last ice age uh, where you wouldn't have a climate that would make migration right. almost impossible. And so, you know, as I look at the ice core records, there are certainly episodes during the last ice age where this could happen. Right. There's other episodes where it couldn't happen. But you can wind up with 20 episodes where it could happen. Yeah. So it's like we're still looking at an estimate. Yeah. We're not looking at an accurate date. And I don't think we ever will come up with an accurate date, but we are coming up with something that's biblically consistent. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah. It was fun doing this. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, let, let's move on, and I'll go ahead and, and talk about the, the idea of Maxwell's, Maxwell's demons, demons in, right. in biochemistry. And uh, just for, for a way to introduce uh, the idea of Maxwell's demon, uh, you know, as a scientist, of course, you're very well aware of the important role that thought experiments play. Uh, oftentimes, they can be used um, as a device of the imagination just to begin to uh, create scenarios that lead to hypotheses that can then drive scientific advance. Other times, they're used as ways to um, kind of illustrate scientific concepts, particularly for a lay audience. And so Wired Magazine, I think in 2007, published an article where they listed what they thought to be the most famous thought, thought experiments. Now, <clears throat> what's missing from that list is Einstein's, Einstein's twins, par, twin paradox. But um, that aside, this is their, their list, and I'm not going to spend any time discussing any one of these experiments in detail. We don't have time for that. Uh, but these are all experiments that I think most people who have any familiarity with science sure. would be well aware of. But the one that I, I want to talk about is uh, the, the Maxwell's demon. And this is actually uh, a uh, thought experiment that Maxwell developed in the late 1800s to illustrate really the, the second law of thermodynamics and to speculate as to how could you con conceive of a scenario where you could violate the second law. And Maxwell actually didn't use the term demon in his original description. It was just a being. But then somebody else later on uh, used that, that term demon. So demon doesn't actually trace its origin to Maxwell, but to somebody following Maxwell. Maybe somebody who had a particularly cantankerous cat, right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> but, but the idea behind this is that, you know, if you have two boxes that have gas particles that are moving around, they're going to move at a, at a range of speeds. And the, 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 the faster the particle moves, the, more, the hotter, hotter the temperature of the particle, right? And so the idea would be that if there, there is an opening between the two boxes, there is going to be an equal distribution of particles uh, that are hot and particles that we might say are cold. Right. And so the idea behind the demon is that this is a, a being that is able to open and close a door that doesn't weigh anything. And by opening and closing the door, the demon can let all the fast-moving moving particles wind up in the, in the left box and the slow-moving particles in the, the right box or vice versa. And by doing that, you now create a non-equilibrium situation right. that violates the second law, right? And, uh, and so that's Maxwell's, you know, thought experiment. Physicists, interestingly enough, as I, I, as I learned, as I read about this experiment more, uh, actually have spent uh, about uh, s almost 100 years thinking through this experiment, trying to come up with ways to explain how Maxwell's demon could actually achieve this non-equilibrium situation without violating the second law. Well, you know, Fuzz, when I was a freshman physics student, we got a problem assigned to us by the professor to calculate the probability that this would work in such a way 
that the student next to us would freeze to death while the student on your right would be sweating buckets from heat. <laughs> and I, that, that's, that's an actual physics problem. There's a real number that calculates the probability of that happening. Yeah. Fortunately, the probability is relatively small. Right. <laughs> well, in other words, I mean, you would be... Uh, violate you would be violating the second law, right? right? Or, or you, yeah, or you practically would be. Well, the the solution to the problem comes from this uh, physicist by the name of Rolf uh, Landauer, I guess is, would be his last name, and he's he's a an information theorist who argued that the the way in which the demon uh, is it fails to violate the second law is that the demon has to make a measurement on the particle to determine its speed and then has to store that information to act on it and then has to erase the information so that it can evaluate the next particle. And that process of going through these information-oriented operations is going to require energy expenditure, and the energy that's expended is greater than what's achieved by attaining the non-equilibrium situation. Right. So that's how you can re resolve this paradox that Maxwell in, in devised with his... The demon can't pull it off. <laughs> the demon cannot pull it off, right? Uh, and, and according to Landauer's calculations, the, the step that consumes the most energy is actually erasing the information from the demon's memory. Now, the, so here we are, fast forward to uh, a, a few weeks ago when a research team uh, from Switzerland discovered that these proteins called ABC transporters are actually Maxwell's demons. Now, what they mean here is that these are not proteins that are violating the second law, but rather these are proteins that are functioning like a Maxwell's demon in light of Landauer's work where they are recording information, storing that information, and then erasing that information to attain a non-equilibrium distribution of particles across the, cell's across the cell's membrane. So these ABC transporters are uh, proteins that are ubiquitous in biology. And because of their ubiquitous nature, they most likely would have appeared in the last universal common ancestor maybe even earlier in life's history than this hypothetical LUCA. Uh, uh, but these are uh, called a protein superfamily, uh, and these proteins reside in cell membranes, and they will transport materials either into the cell or out of the cell. If it's into the cell, it's an importer. Out of the cell, it's an exporter. Uh, but in all cases, they're, they're, generate, or they're us using energy to maintain this concentration gradient or to this non-equilibrium situation. So you could refer to them as customs agents for the cell? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah to some degree, that's one way to look at them. And this is a, a, a what's called a ribbon diagram of two different versions of these ABC transporters. They consist of four subunits. Two of them are called the, the, the transmembrane domain. These are embedded in the membrane, spanning uh, the inner and the spanning the membrane, connecting the inner and the outer regions to each other, the inner region of the cell to the outer region outside the cell. And they actually can open and close to form a channel that allows the movement of materials across the membrane. The other part of the protein is called the, the nucleotide binding domain, and it's always found on the cytoplasmic side of the membrane. And these are subunits that bind the molecule ATP, which is also known as a nucleotide. And when ATP is hydrolyzed, it generates ADP and inorganic phosphate, but that hydro, hydro, hydrolysis reaction liberates energy that the cell uses to power the transport across the gradient. The nucleotide binding domains in ABC transporters are virtually identical. This is, this is why they are considered to belong to the same family. However, the transmembrane portion is, varies widely from organism to organism and is highly specific to the particular material move that it's going to move across membranes. Uh, and, and now the, um, the protein on the right with the, the, the pink uh, subunit, that's actually uh, for an importer where that... Uh, protein will bind uh, materials in the 
exterior environment and bring it to the transporter so that it can deliver it into the cell. So this is considered to be part of the protein complex, though it will dissociate from the the transmembrane binding domain. Interestingly enough, importers are only found in prokaryotic organisms like bacteria, whereas in eukaryotic organisms like humans, we only have exporters. And uh, these these proteins are actually very important uh, proteins uh, because, number one, they are one way in which bacteria acquire nutrients from their environment. But But the exporters in bacteria will export toxins out of the cell, which includes antibiotics. And so there are some bacteria that have multi-drug resistance, uh, multi-antibiotic resistance, because they have these ABC transporters that view the antibiotic as a toxin, which it is for the bacteria, and they will eject it from the cell. Well, in humans, we have these exporters as well that are sometimes used to move fats uh, from the cell into the cell membrane or to secrete them into the extracellular space. But we also use them as a way to protect the cell from toxins. So this is really important because when people are trying to deliver drugs to patients, these ABC transporters will actually work against the drug delivery mechanism, kind of frustrating delivery of drugs. So these are biomedically very important proteins. And in fact, in humans, there might be about 50 different ABC transporters that are found. Uh, This is a a close-up real real quickly showing um, the nucleotide binding domain and those pink regions, those little pink molecules are uh, ATP that are are bound to the nucleotide binding domains. So this slide shows the mechanism for how these work, and this becomes important to understand why these are considered Maxwell's demons. So this is an importer that would be found in a bacteria. Mm-hmm. And so you have this binding protein that is like this light green V that binds the material going to be moved across the membrane that will then interact with the, uh, the transmembrane domains. And in that rusting configuration, you have the two transmembrane uh, subunits in an, in a, a configuration that is opened to the cytoplasm. And in that configuration, the nucleotide binding domains will bind ATP. So when that protein binds, uh, it will deliver that sub, it'll cause a conformational change. So the transmembrane domains will flip o- flip so the, the other way. Opens. Right. And now it creates a binding site for the the molecule to be transported, it's called a high affinity binding site. There's a high attraction of that protein region to that particular molecule that's going to be transported. Once that binding happens, it causes a change in the nucleotide binding domain that then causes ATP to be hydrolyzed. When that happens, it then changes the conformation of the transmembrane uh, domains so that it now flips the binding site from the exterior of the cell to the interior. And in that configuration, the binding site is a low affinity site, which means the molecule dissociates. So you have two molecules of ATP that are hydrolyzed in order to move that one molecule across the membrane. And then it goes back to this rusting configuration and the process is repeated. Uh, Similar mechanism for exporters, where again, you have uh, this case, the, the, in the rusting state, the transmembrane domain is open to the interior of the cell, and, and then there's a, a high affinity site. Once that substrate binds, it causes ATP to bind to the nucleotide binding domains. Uh, that causes a change in the transmembrane domains that then create a low affinity site. The material is excluded from the cell and ATP is hydrolyzed and the process is repeated. So it's a, it's a you know, this sequential stepwise uh, process. And so what the researchers noted is that there's a superficial similarity between ABC transporters and Maxwell's demons. And this is a, a diagram taken from the paper where they, they show kind of the, the superficial similarity. But what they then did is they developed mathematical models to describe the transport of materials uh, 
in and out, in either in or out of cells. And these mathematical models expose the fact that these are not just simply superficially similar to Maxwell's demons, they actually are functioning as bona fide Maxwell's demons. Uh, and this is what they say. In this work, we propose a simple model of ABC transporters whose solution shows that they are not simply an analogous to Maxwell's demons, they are autonomous Maxwell's demons. And what's happening is the, the, these ABC transporters are actually gaining information about the substrate, right, just like a Maxwell's demon would do. And this is through the binding of that substrate to that, that high affinity site. That binding operation is now communicating information about that material, telling the, that transporter this to, is to be moved from one side of the membrane to the other. The, the, so that's the measurement. And then it's storing that information in memory, in the, in the confirmation of the protein. And then when it uh, changes the conformation and the, the material is moved across the membrane, uh, this, the protein returns to its native state, and that is an er erasure of the information uh, that was, was stored. And this is where usually the ATP hydrolysis is taking place in conjunction with that step. And so this is literally a, a Maxwell's demon. Now, what's interesting is that what the Maxwell's demon of the Landauer conception, not the Maxwell conception, uh, literally is a, is, a, is a molecular level machine. It's a nano machine. And in fact, this is a, a, a quote from a, a, a physicist who works in statistical physics uh, commenting on the work published by the Swiss scientists. And he's pointing out that these ABC transporters can be thought as simple computational devices that are employing what's called a, a logical AND circuitry. And this is what a logical AND circuit is. It's essentially a scenario where you have to have two inputs that are true in order for an output to take place. And the two inputs would be that you have to have the substrate binding to the, the high affinity site and ATP has to be bound. And it's happening sequentially. And as a result of those sequential bindings, you, you literally are getting a transport. So this is where things become, I think, really interesting in terms of the philosophical implications of the work. Well, let me stop you right here because this really, like what they're saying, these are not just analogous, they really are right. Maxwell demons, in which case, according to the physicists, there should be an energy requirement to make this work. Right. And so have these chemists actually measured the energy? Well, it's, it's the ATP hydrolysis. True but it has to be at a certain level to make all this work. Yes. I mean, you, well, you, we know what, how much energy is released with ATP hydrolysis. Um, and we know you can calculate uh, using thermodynamic equations of, of, of chemical thermodynamics what the energy is that is attained uh, to maintain a gradient across membranes. If it's the particle is charged, it's an electrochemical gradient. If not, it's just a chemical gradient. So there are equations that will calculate that energy that's required to maintain the yeah, gradient. All I'm asking yeah. is, did the researchers actually do the energy calculations to show that this is consistent with their conclusion that these are actual uh, Maxwell um, demons? I don't know that they, they, they did. They, what they did is ma develop mathematical models that showed that there was a measurement of, uh, there was information being recorded about the particle mm -hmm. stored and then erased. That's what they were pointing out. Uh, they didn't need to do those calculations because that's been, that's, that's been well, that's been well established just by the study of ABC transporters is that look there. So previous work already established right, that. Right. We know how much energy is released mm -hmm. when ATP is hydrolyzed and we can calculate the, the gradients. And so you can show that you're not violating the second law, right? That, that there's actually uh, a, a generation of heat. Or, so the physicists need not panic. Right, yes, there's nothing to panic. Okay. Yeah, but, but the, to me, the, um, what's very intriguing about this is that this is demonstrating unequivocally that these ABC transporters are computational devices. 
that they actually are making a, a measurement, recording that information all in, within the structure of the molecule and then erasing that information uh, and then employing a particular type of circuit known as, again, a, a logical AND circuit. But these are literally computation devices. These are not just simply molecules that are moving materials across membranes, but there's actually a, a computation taking place. And, and when there's a computation taking place, there's an algorithm, right, which is a set of instructions that these proteins are following. And that algorithm is actually built into the, the physical structure of the molecule, right? It's built into the structure of the binding sites. It's built into the, 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 the protein uh, you know, tertiary structure. It's also built into the way in which the transmembrane binding domains interact with the nucleotide binding domains. So th there's, th you know, that structure is really critical, again, f to process that information and then to, uh, to again, erase that information. And, the, the, and so when you talk about algorithms that are physically instantiated within, uh, within you know, the, a physical machine, that suggests the work of a mind, right? Algorithms are a set of instructions, a set of instructions or information, and we know from experience that information is something that minds create. Instructions are something that minds create, right? And so in order for this to be an information system that is engaged in computation or engaged in an algorithmic operation, there's got to be a mind behind it because those kind of machines we build all the time as humans, and these machines, again, reflect the work of intelligent agency. And I think you were actually with me on a show maybe well over a year ago where we talked about biochemical finite state machines. Right. 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 So real quickly, finite state machines are these machines that can exist in discrete states and they transition from one state to another based on input. And so there's input, there is a different states and there is the, 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 the transition mechanism or the transition that takes place. And the transition between states depends upon the state that the machine is currently in and the nature of the input. But the and, and finite state machines, there, there are two types. One are what are used by software engineers to develop computer programs, but the other are actually physical machines that engineers create. And these finite state machines are all around us. The one of the simplest one would be a turnstile, where there are two states locked and unlocked, and the input is a coin and, and a push on the part of the person using this. And so depending upon the state of the system, the coin as the input, and whether or not the system is pushed, the system will go from an unlocked to a locked state. That is a, a finite state machine. And there are much more elaborate finite state machines like the ATM machines we use to get money or a vending machine. These are all examples of, of finite state machines. But the point is that these machines are mechanical computers where there's an algorithm. And, and again, the algorithm is, it, algorithm is literally built into the design of the machine, right? And so what we're seeing here is an analogous, uh, an, sorry, an analogy between uh, the ABC transporters and finite state machines, which are computation devices. It's just that these ABC transporters are biochemical finite state machines that are using, again, this logical and algorithm to, to deploy their well, Fuzz, operation. I think what makes your argument strong is the fact that you need both the algorithm and the machine to ensure you're getting the right mm -hmm. export right. compound going out at the right rate. Right. You've got to have it tuned to the molecules you want to get rid of right. and the rate that you want to get rid of them. Right. And we're dealing with more than one toxin, right? Yes. And so that means we need to have multiple distinct algorithms and multiple distinct machines. Right. right. Which is, again, the whole point. You need a mind to explain that. Right. Uh, we're not just talking one algorithm and one machine. Right. We're talking multiple ones, and different cells are going to have different needs. Right. In, 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 in a sense, this is essentially a double watchmaker argument. There's the, you have these, uh, again, ABC transporters that are ubiquitous, that are critical, you know, for living systems. 
uh, these ABC transporters that are, you know, again, finite state machines, literally finite state machines, which is similar to the machines that we build. And then the second, you know, part of that watchmaker argument or what augments the argument is that they also are information systems using an algorithmic information. So it's really a double watchmaker argument. And again, the idea would be, look, our experience is that these kind of systems reflect, you know, not only, you know, intelligent agency, but some pretty brilliant minds <laughs> to it's conceive quite, them. It's quite an engineering feat. Right, to conceive them and to, and to design, you know, and to execute their design. So when we see this kind of feature that defines biochemistry, to me, it really is eerie and suggests there really is a mind behind everything. And you're not going to have the origin of life without having these in place. Right. The fact that the, 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 these systems, which really are sophisticated, show up this early in life's history is, is again, really something that is um, hard to explain from an evolutionary perspective because... And they have to be fully present in the very first life form. Yeah. You can't get away without them. Well, there was an episode we did... Um, you, uh, I w did it with Cy Gart where we talked about some recent work showing that the last universal common ancestor was far more complex than anybody would have imagined and that it shows up uh, extremely early in life's history, arguably earlier than 3.8 billion years ago. And the, the researchers were saying, look, <laughs> this is not a gradual accumulation of complexity. This is a very rapid emergence of a very complex system uh, and the ABC transporters are going to be part of that complex system as well are, as a whole host of other very complex biochemical and operations. And you're going to need more than one machine and one algorithm. Yes, exactly. Right at the very get-go. Right. So anyway, so I think it just a really fascinating uh, discovery. Just from a scientific perspective, it really is more than just simply a novelty. It really has implications in terms of understanding fundamental biochemistry but we're seeing more and more work that's exposing the idea that there's information that's algorithmic in nature that's really embedded within, uh, you know, biochemical systems. Now, has anybody uh, in the peer-reviewed literature written anything that connects these ABC transporters to the origin of life problem? No, not that. Maybe you ought to do that. Buzz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, it's interesting though because. Um, a number of years ago, uh, Paul Davies and Sarah Walker wrote an article where they basically were making the point that the original life research community is chasing the wrong, the wrong car, right? There are dogs chasing the wrong car because the real question is how do we explain the origin of algorithmic information? Right. And they were marveling at the fact that biochemical systems have these algorithms that are instantiated in the physical makeup of biochemistry and that this is essentially dictating the operation of these systems. And their point was nobody knows how to explain the origin of algorithmic information. We can explain how a protein might emerge with a particular sequence of amino acids. They said that that's a relatively easy problem. Still challenging, but, but, but comparatively. But, right, but... but for the origin of algorithmic information that is then instantiated in the molecules, they're arguing there isn't a model, but that's really the origin of life problem. And so what these researchers are doing is highlighting the fact that this is, seems to be a ubiquitous feature of biochemical systems, and that ubiquitous feature is tied up to the origin of life problem in that you've got to explain where the algorithms are coming from. And... Not only that, but then how do they get built into the design of the molecules? Right. Because those algorithms cannot tolerate much structural variation in the proteins. If you start varying the, 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 the binding sites of, for the, the substrate that's moving across the membrane ever so slightly, and you create a low affinity site where it should be a high affinity site by just changing one or two amino acids, you now have compromise the operation of that system. So there's a, a precision to being able to read the information in the molecule and then to store that information and operate on it and then erase that information. It's not trivial. Well, I hear your passion, Buzz, and I don't know how many of our constituents are aware 
that you are, you know, your area of real high expertise is membrane bio, biochemistry. Yeah. This is right up your alley. Yeah. So I'd love to see you write a paper <laughs> that actually links these ABC transporters to the origin of life problem, because yeah. I think that the... And we'll see where we can get it published and distributed, but yeah, somebody needs to do it, and I think you're the guy to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I actually did present a paper at a, at a, at a quasi-scientific meeting this summer about the idea that biochemical systems are finite state machines. And I did get feedback from our friend David Snoke, who's a physicist, who thought that was something that could actually be published right. as, a, as a novel insight into the nature of biochemical systems. But the theological implications are, are enormous. Are enormous if, yeah. you know. So anyway, um, I, it's my passion. I, I don't know how many people watching this are passionate about membrane biochemistry, well, but it's I'm my passion. I'm passionate passion. about this, Fuzz, because I can see the potential that this has to really build the reasons to believe model in the context of the origin of life. Yeah. I mean, we've written a book on the origin of life. You've written a lot of papers on it. But this, to me, is a major breakthrough that I think yeah. we need to really get yeah. well. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. Yeah, okay. and, and thanks to these scientists from Switzerland who... Well, let's see if we really can carve out some time in your schedule because I know we're keeping you awfully busy. Yeah. So hopefully we can set you free to do this. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've we've done enough damage for today, Hugh. <laughs> uh, but uh, hopefully everybody has enjoyed our discussion of two discoveries in science that continue to affirm the idea that God exists, uh, that God is good, and that the Scripture, part particularly the, the creation accounts, are reliable. And if that's the case then the message of Scripture, which is ultimately the gospel, is reliable as well. Uh, join us next time for Star Cells and God, and you can be notified when the next episode drops if you go to our YouTube channel and you not only subscribe, but use the notification button. It will alert you when, again, the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. Follow us on social media, rtb underscore official. And then also make sure that you subscribe to this podcast using uh, the, the, uh, the different podcast uh, services that are available. And then finally, I just want to remind you, the more we discover about science, the more we have reasons to believe. Until next time.